Hi, my name is Beck, and I'll be reading the second Bible passage today, which is John 12, verses 12 to 19. So I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bibles. Before we read, um, we'll just pray together. So please pray with me. O God, may your spirit work in our hearts and minds today so that we may understand through your word who Jesus is and praise him as our glorious and good king who defeats sin and death and repairs our relationship with you, our creator. And as we go about our week, please encourage and help us to share the good news of Christ with those around us. But as we sit here today, please help calm our thoughts so that we can focus on your word. And please be with Matt as he teaches. Amen. John chapter 12, starting at verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with, with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm the pastor here. It's a pleasure to have so many regulars and a bunch of uh, visitors as well. Uh, we are continuing. We've just started last week our series in the Gospel of John. We started at the halfway point because it's a series we started a few years ago uh, and we're finishing it off uh, in this semester, God willing. Well, it was not long ago now that I watched uh, Disney's film Aladdin with my eldest two girls. It reminded me of the first time that I watched Aladdin. I didn't get to watch it on a, on a big screen. I watched it on a tiny, grainy screen in St. Benedict's Primary School in the final week of year four, 1993. It was a dodgy, boot-legged copy. Some guy in Indonesia had filmed, perhaps under a jumper, that our teacher offered up to appease the wrath of the tired and restless year fours. Mrs. Wayne had given up on teaching any semblance of control, and clearly any moral reservation that might prevent the showing of an illicit recording, as it was. And I was spellbound by the film. It was magical in every sense of the word. 
it may still today be my favourite Disney film, at least in my top five. And, spoiler alert, it's about a guy called Aladdin. And, of course, a, a princess called Jasmine, her tiger called Rajah, a man, evil man, called Jafar, his bird, Iago, and a genie called Genie. Now, my guess is most of you knew this already. And you also probably know that whoever has the genie has the power. That's kind of how it works. And now a genuine spoiler alert. Plug your ears if you haven't watched it and you plan to, although you have had 30-odd years to watch it. When the bad guy Jafar gets his hands on the genie, Aladdin, our protagonist, our hero, his survival chances take a significant nosedive. And when, with his second wish, Jafar becomes the most powerful sorcerer of all time, it seems like over Kedova for Aladdin. He uses his newfound power to prodigious effects. But then, wily Aladdin, realizing that Jafar's thirst for power will be his great undoing, baits him, informs him that even with all his sorcerer supreme power he has, there is still one being more powerful than he is, genie. Jafar realizes immediately the truth of this and then promptly uses his third and final wish to become the most powerful genie of all time. His wish is immediately granted and we get a glimpse of his cosmic power as he inflates, I don't know if you remember that scene, to kind of gigantic proportions, full galaxy controlling potency on display. But of course, it goes south for Jafar pretty quickly, doesn't it? The shackles come on, the lamp comes out, and the realization dawns upon our genie spectacular that he has been tricked. And he now has a fate eternal inside a lamp. Phenomenal cosmic powers. Itty bitty living space. And it's not hard as you watch the film. I think you naturally do it to ask yourself the question, what would I do with all these powers? And I wandered back to little Matt in year four. What would little 10-year-old Matt do with those powers? I, I can't remember. But I have no doubt that if 10-year-old Matt was granted that much unadulterated power, it would have been disastrous for himself. But what's even sadder than that is that I'm pretty sure that giving 38-year-old Matt those powers would not just be disastrous for himself, but for all of you as well. And disastrous not just because it's hard to work out the consequences of your action, I mean, that is true in every kind of genie film or, or comic or, or fairy tale, is that type of cautionary tale, isn't it? Be careful what you wish for. But you see, it's not just that I can't determine the consequences of my action. My great fear is I know precisely the consequences of my action, and I would still do it. And I don't think it's just me. Uh, take a moment to reflect. If you had all the power in the world, what would you do with said power? 
Now, perhaps our context kind of skews things a bit. We're in church, so it'll be about converting the nations and feeding the poor and solving world hunger. Sure, sure, sure. But what about your actual fantasies? What about your fantasies when you're in the wild, at your desk, at work, at school, as you drive, as you scroll through your feed, as you watch, as you cook, as you drink, as you walk down the aisle of a supermarket? How would you use your powers in real life, your wishes? Questions, right? Jury hasn't returned yet. Uh, you know, my guess is knowing my heart and perhaps having a slight window into yours and also having some idea of what a king does, a president does, and a CEO does with unchecked power, we're actually rather grateful that none of us have that genie-like potency, aren't we? Grateful that that kind of power only exists on the pages of fairy tales, on the tiles of a comic book, or on the screen, but not in, like, real, real life. But of course, that's not actually true, is it? In fact, you wouldn't be here this morning at a thing called church if there wasn't one solitary, unique, and rather singular exception to that rule. Because we're here today because there once lived a man with even more powerful capacity than our genie. In fact, if you're going to wind the clock back, if you remember the film, there's this scene right at the start where genie's warning Al Aladdin of like kind of what you can and you can't do with a genie, how many wishes there are, and he, he gives the rules, doesn't he? There's three kind of three rules, and this kind of generally applies to all genie type things. You watch, you, one, you can't wish for more wishes. Two, you can't wish that someone falls in love with you. And remember rule number three: I can't bring people back from the dead. It's not a pretty picture. Which, of course, brings us to John chapter 11, doesn't it? Where we see Jesus doing exactly that, bringing back someone from the dead. And as we follow Jesus in the gospel stories, as we see him turn water into wine, multiply bread and fish from thin air, heal the blind, the leprous, the lame, walk on water, calms the storm with one word, now with three words, raises Lazarus from the dead. Chapter 11, verse 43. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Uh, Stephen King, the author, Riley notes that Jesus had to use Lazarus' name at that point. Otherwise, the whole graveyard would have risen to life. And we might miss it because we're blinded by the familiar, because it's ho-hum and humdrum for us who attend church. But if, when you think about it, it's true to say that Jesus is more powerful than any genie that which can be conceived. There's no rule number three for Jesus, no rule number one or two either. But we who have been raised in the church or even just grown up in Western culture, I think you've got a bit disinterested, a bit dulled, bored 
by who Jesus is and what he can do. But be under no illusions. We might be bored, but the people living with Jesus, his contemporaries, are far from bored. They see his power and they react accordingly. And in fact, if this is the outline of the sermon, now we're going to just spend the rest of the time that we have looking at three different responses to Jesus' power and authority. And we're going to begin, so we're in chapter 12, um, and we are going to begin in verse 9. No, sorry, verse 12, sorry, 12, 12. I think that's right. And we are reading about, sorry, I just lost my notes. We're reading about the crowd's response. That makes sense. Our first group that we're looking at are the crowd and how they respond. The next day, the great crowd that had come from the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, we hear, we hear great crowd. It's kind of hard to work out, like, how is that? Five people, is that 50 people, is that five thousand? What is it? What is a great crowd in the ancient world? Well, we're actually helped by this. There's a Jewish historian who's, who's relatively famous. He lived around Jesus' time a bit after called Josephus. And, and he says that in his day, so not long after Jesus, 2.5 to 2.7 million people came to Jerusalem from all around the world for Passover. Now, for the record, uh, Josephus is known for inflating figures at time. Just take it with a pinch of salt. But hey, even if he's doubling, tripling, quadrupling, quintupling, whatever the word is for that, this is actually a really, really, really big crowd. And, and picture the scene, if you will. A monumental heaving kind of organ of people. And they're filled with nationalistic fervor. That is, they're returning to Jerusalem, their capital, but they're returning to celebrate Passover, which is their origin story, the beginning of their nation. That, that, that place is like a tinderbox. Revolution is in the air. And then word spreads amongst the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, about this mystery wonder worker called Jesus. About all the things he's done, particularly a couple of weeks ago, maybe even a few days ago, raising Lazarus from the dead. You can see the crowd, they're kind of whipped up into a frenzied fervor. And think, think kind of Optus Stadium filled with Scorchers supporters, but like on steroids, and then times 15, 20, 30 times. But you see, they're not just animated by the prospect of seeing Jesus, the miracle work. I mean, that is kind of cool. It's not every day you run into someone who can raise someone from the dead, right? But that's actually not what they're excited about. There's something, they're excited about something more specific, more, more focused. You see it in their words, don't you? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. See, these crowds, in Jesus, they see the promise of a new and powerful king. And like a real king, not, not their current king, the incumbent, King Herod. He's a fake king. He fudged his birth certificate to kind of get the credentials to the throne. No, this is a real king and a king with teeth and with muscles, firepower, a guy that can make the changes that are needed around here. And particularly, the power to change the political circumstances. 
And this is a bit of information that's really helpful to know on the backdrop as you read the Gospels, that the people of Jesus' day, and I know most of us know this, but it's, it's helpful to, to reiterate, the people of Jesus' day, the, the Jewish nation or the Israelites, using kind of interchangeably here, they were a subjugated people. That is, they were, they were dominated by, well, kind of like everyone else in the ancient world at this point, the Romans. And they longed to be free of Caesar's shackles. They longed for the day when the imperial banners of Rome with their eagle were marched out of their city, out of their country for good. How do we know this is what's going on? Well, there's a bunch of other passages that kind of touch on this, but actually we get a clue here. Lincoln, you miss it though. Verse 13. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. Now, that might seem kind of innocuous enough statement. Palms were kind of everywhere. It would be the thing you choose if you were going to choose some form of plant-related thing. But actually, palms were laden with symbolism in Jesus' day. It was the symbol of their nation, of their kind of nationalistic pride. Like a Tudor rose for an Englishman or woman, or the cherry blossom for someone from Japan but it actually was freighted with even more meaning than that because by waving these palm fronds toward a king they hoped for, they are almost certainly recalling a scene from 200 years earlier, which is 160 BC if you want to kind of to date that. And you won't find it in the pages of the Bible because it's in the intervening period between the Old Testament finishing, the first two-thirds of the New Testament starting, but we have many books which record the scene, including the books of First and Second Maccabees. And it's a sign of unbridled joy as the Jewish people, 200 years before Jesus, waved palm branches in triumph as they celebrated the victory of their hero, Simon Maccabeus, as he and his brothers had routed, had drove out their Syrian and Seleucid overlords. By waving a palm bronze, they're recalling that great moment where against odds and expectation, if you know the story, Israel conquered their conqueror and drove them out. And after this victory of 160 or so BC, Simon and his family, the Maccabees, they have their own dynasty for about 100 years. Jewish people finally ruling other Jewish people. It's actually, 100 years sounds long, but it's not, and it's sandwiched between seven, 800 years of foreign rule for the Israelites. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes, the Greeks, the Syrians, the Seleucids, and then now, the Romans. And so these people were waving these palm fronds in fervent expectation and hope that perhaps the time had finally arrived for freedom again. Perhaps with Jesus, they had another Simon Maccabeus, someone who might set them free from their oppressors. But they're actually hoping for even more than that. Because they, they quote Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And everyone in the first century knew that Psalm 118, which they're quoting, was a very special psalm. A messianic psalm. That is a psalm which prophesied the coming, one of a number, 
of the coming of their Messiah, their Christ, their anointed one. Kind of means the same thing, Messiah, Christ, anointed one, their king, their forever king. And so as they heard about Jesus' miraculous powers, his resurrection powers, they dared to dream that after 700 years of being subjugated, that they might finally have their forever king come, overthrow their oppressors once and for all, and establish an eternal kingdom. Coming back to our question, how did the crowds respond to Jesus' power? With great warmth, enthusiasm, zealous excitement. But notice the expectations. They're framed in very political terms, aren't they? And you see, when he doesn't do what they wanted him to do, so when he comes to Jerusalem, and instead of the fighting the Romans, he teaches, instead of attacking their legion, he attacks the temple, instead of drawing their blood, he draws water and washes his disciples' feet. They are not impressed. That is not at all what an all-conquering Messiah with superpowers is meant to do. It's little wonder then, fast forward from that Sunday, Palm Sunday, to that coming Friday, Good Friday, six days later, he's left for dead, isn't he? The crowds who celebrated his arrival are now silent. Uh, perhaps, in fact, we don't know, but perhaps some of them are amongst the crowds yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And then remember in that scene, Pilate recognizes, the one with judicial authority to have Jesus crucified as the Roman representative, he realizes that Jesus is innocent. And so what he does is he gives, he gives them a get out of jail free card, or rather he gives the Israel, an opportunity to not have Jesus crucified. He says, what about Barabbas, guilty Barabbas? You can let him go, or you can let the innocent Jesus go. Come on, guys, you know what you should be choosing right now. And yet, we know how that goes, don't they? The, the crowds cry for Jesus' blood and that Barabbas be released. And remember, if you don't know, Barabbas was a man who was jailed for murder in an insurrection. That's a fancy word for a violent rebellion. Barabbas was a man of political ambition. He was a man after their own heart. You see, the crowds kind of wished Jesus would be more like Barabbas, that he would wield that power in that way. And so they let him go free. They'd rather have a fake Messiah on their own terms, according to their agenda, than a true Messiah. And kind of fast-forwarding a couple of thousand years to us today, I think we have a mirror with these crowds, a mirror that reflects some of the people maybe in here and certainly out there that reject the real Jesus and worship a fake one instead, a Jesus that fits their expectations of what they think a Messiah should do. Maybe they worship the progressive Jesus who baptizes every modern fad and fashion. Maybe they worship a far-right Jesus 
who one commentator put it only a couple of months ago, wouldn't have been crucified if he'd had a gun. Or maybe it's the health and wealth Jesus, who is there a bit like a genie in a bottle, to be rubbed the right way and poof, all your dreams come true. The political Jesus, who's there as meanly as a means to an end of worldly, earthly power. And it's true of us too. Every time we instrumentalize Jesus, that is, make him a means to our alternative end, make him subservient to the agenda that we bring to our lives, to the Scriptures. Every time we tell Jesus, all right, Jesus, it's about time you delivered on this for me. We're a bit like that crowd asking for a Messiah to do things our way, to do things on our own terms. We're saying it's our way or the cross for you, Jesus. Well, that's our first group, the crowds. Second of three, we now have the religious leaders. How do they respond to Jesus' power? And at least you've got to give them this, they're consistent. From the start, they have hated Jesus' guts. They have felt threatened by his power. And this point is amply demonstrated, as was last week's scene, if you remember, by a bookending. This scene is bookended, starting in the beginning with these threats. So chapter 12, verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, that is, as well as Jesus. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. And then fast forward to the end, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, we, sometimes we kind of conflate these groups. We put them together, the chief priests and the Pharisees. They're quite different groups, okay? So let me try and explain. The Pharisees, and they pop up kind of the most, they want Jesus dead because he's undermining them by his constant critique his winning debates. He's a threat to their prestige, their status, and ultimately a threat to their kind of kingdom of piety. In the regional, not in the city, but in regional Judea, the Pharisees were the ones who had the seats of power, and they knew if they wanted to keep this regional power, then Jesus has got to go. Now, the chief priests... They had a different agenda. They wanted him dead for slightly different, like related but different reasons. They wanted him God he was, because he was a threat to their temple. And that meant he was a threat to their finances because that's where all the money goes through, their political power because he who holds the temple holds Jerusalem, and their earthly ambitions. And I think sometimes we don't quite see how, I mean, we can see how corrupt the chief priests are with what they do with Jesus, but actually it's one in actually a vast canvas of corruption. Let me read you a quote now. Uh, it's from an Oxford professor called Marcus Bockmule, and he describes the temple system this way in the first century. The temple authorities operated what amounted to a mob network. The legitimate and necessary operation of the temple was supported by a maze of intrigue, nepotism and corruption, which is amply reflected in Josephus 
our historian from before, and early rabbinic sources. And get this bit. In particular, their hierarchy operated agents and hit squads, known as men of violence. And it sounds so gangster. The big men of the priesthood. Including among these, this is an Oxford scholar, this isn't some random kind of hack, right? Oxford scholar, who's included among them was the Levitical temple guard, whose armed forays on behalf of the Sanhedrin, that's kind of the ruling party, are encountered on the pages of the New Testament. That is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll read it soon in John a little later. Josephus records that thugs employed by the high priest used to rob tithes intended for the priests. And by Jesus critiquing the temple of decrying its corruption, he was a clear and present threat to their rule. And so whether we're our mobster high chief priests or our pietistic Pharisees, Jesus' power is a worry, isn't it? He threatens their privileged and prestigious position. He threatens to upend a status quo that has seen them get very fat, very sleek, very content. And you and I, we don't live in a world of Pharisees and mobster high priests, chief priests. But I think there is a mirror to our own world here as well. Maybe your neighbours, maybe some people in this hall this morning who are wary of Jesus because he threatens their very precious and very lucrative status quo. They know if they take Jesus seriously, then their lives will have to seriously change. The things, the habits, the patterns that they become very comfortable with whether it's the language they use, watch they watch, how they spend, the company they keep, they know that Jesus will be a game changer for that. And they're just a little too fat, a little too contented, a little too comfortable for that. And so they manufacture one reason or another, but the end, following Jesus, is just too high a price to pay. Too much power... And privilege must be forfeited to follow Jesus as their master. Well, that's the crowds, that's the men of power. And thirdly, and finally, how does Jesus, how does Jesus respond to his own power? I don't know whether you've ever kind of asked yourself this question, but I wonder if you've ever wondered... When did Jesus kind of work out who he was? I mean, did he kind of always know? Or was it from that scene in the temple when he taught? Or was it when he kind of worked out that he could kind of part water in the bathtub? He could just give himself extra dinner when no one's looking? Or was it a bit like Superman, like a gradual realisation of what he can do? Well, to be honest, it's probably not that fruitful to speculate. But what we do know, by this point in his ministry... He's very clear of who he is, of what he can do and what he must do. He sets the agenda throughout the Gospel of John. And how does Jesus respond to his own immense power and authority? Verse 14 and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. 
Now, there's two things to say here. One, the choice of donkey is no accident. He knows that he's fulfilling this prophecy. This is a prophecy of Zechariah, who lived five, six, seven hundred years, I can't quite remember which century it is, before Jesus. And he, a prophet of the Old Testament, prophesied that the coming king, the Messiah, would ride on the back of a donkey. And now we might be surprised by the choice of a donkey, kind of not our first call, not a noble stallion, but it's not quite as ignoble as it sounds. Both King Solomon and King David rode on donkeys. They're the two big kings of the Old Testament. They rode on donkeys in key points of their kingship. In fact, famously, Solomon rode on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem as the new king. So by, by riding on the back of a donkey, Jesus is clearly fulfilling this kingly, prophetic um, this promise. And the disciples got this. I think the crowd got this, but it's the other implication they miss, verse 16 and 17, or maybe just 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, that's died and raised, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been, do- and these things had been done to him? Well, what do they miss? Well, it's possible, likely perhaps, that they get the whole messianic connection. But what they don't see is it reveals how he's going to use his immense power. Because he doesn't choose a chariot, doesn't choose a royal procession or even a war horse. He does choose, as Zachariah says in another translation in the original, a lowly donkey, colt, baby donkey. And here's the thing, no one makes war on the back of a donkey. No one tramples over another person on a donkey. It's, it, it is, and all said and done, might have some regal connotations, but it's still a humble beast of burden. And it points to how Jesus is going to use his kingly authority. In humility, to not be served, but to serve. Not to save himself, but to save others. Think about this like in a different way. It's sometimes dangerous to do this, but, but work with me here. Put yourselves in Jesus' sandals for a moment. And this scene, you're coming to Jerusalem, Mother Jerusalem, Mother Zion, as her rightful king. Not just as her king, but as the one who as God kind of created her, gave her life, who, who upholds her very existence as a city, as a nation, as a people. And and what happens to you when you get there? Well, that's true. There is a group that worship you to begin with. But that lasts about two seconds, doesn't it? And then there's jeering, there's rejection, there's mocking, there's being spat upon, there's being whipped, there's being abandoned, there's being nailed, exposed, bleeding, and ultimately suffocating. You see, me, if I'm Jesus, again, dangerous thought experience, but if I'm Jesus, knowing that I could flatten Jerusalem with the breath of my mouth, I could have called legions of angels and rained fire down upon my enemies. Me, Jesus, Jerusalem, Judas, my so-called friends, toast. Sodom and Gomorrah, a picnic. But thankfully, I'm not God. I'm not that powerful. 
It's his power, not mine. And Jesus, as the God of love incarnate in the flesh, he loves even those who would mock, spit, flay, and crucify him. He loves his betrayers more than he loves his own life. It's all well and good thinking of laying down your life for someone who loves you. But dying for someone who despises you, who executes you, he uses his power and love not by triumphing over his earthly enemies, but by dying for them in their place. You see, and as I look at those crowds who responded, I see a revelation of my own heart. Loving him only when he's loving me back on my terms, serving him when it serves me best. And even as I look at the chief priests and the Pharisees, I see me again serving Jesus only when it's comfortable, handing him over to be crucified every time I think he's demanding too much from me, he threatens my comfort, daring to command I do something I do not want to do. See, as we read John 12, 12 to 19, I see my heart in its grotesqueness, in its hideous deformity. And yet, he loves me the same. A guy who lived about 100 years ago, a guy called Octavius Winslow, he says this, so completely... So completely was Jesus bent on saving sinners by sacrificing himself. So bent was he that he created the tree upon which he was to die. And nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to that accursed wood. See, that is the heart of that strange king who arrived on a donkey's back into his city 2,000 years ago. The heart of that strange king who came to die, which is none other than this heart of the strange God whom we worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he used his power in a way that we would never. Thank you that he used his majesty, his might, his authority to, like a lamb to the slaughter, died in our place instead. Father, I pray that you might help us to begin to grasp, to fathom even a fractional percentage of what that means. To better grasp the love displayed there. To better grasp the wonder of the gospel that we live for and serve. In Jesus' name. Amen.